for our normal intro today because we've got a cram-packed show we're going to run a minute or two over first up today we have dante white he is building up work on steroids what an amazing story you cannot wait to meet him and then Corey dr al is with us to talk about the internet con he is going to blow your mind away with some of his thoughts ideas it's an amazing show you are lucky to be here and thanks for that we are going to get started right now very excited to introduce my first guest. Wow, this is quite a cool story. Please welcome Dante White. He is the founder of Opuous. We will learn about it, but boy, has it already gotten some awards. It was America's most impactfully privately held company for 2030. The well, Dante has been named one of the 30 best leaders to watch by the Silicon Review. The, uh, I was reading some of the other accolades, including 2030 impact company of the year. They beat out 50,000 other businesses to be part of a new reality show on entrepreneurship. We will definitely find out about that. Wow. Dante, welcome. How are yeah. you doing? Thanks. Yeah. Thanks to you so much, Jim. I'm doing great. Thank you. I don't have any clue what the business does, but boy, is it cool. What does it do? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, Opuis is a technology and energy advisory company for, uh, you know, any kind of business. So we can help small businesses, you know, one user shops, uh, and oh, we even help right. some that's larger right. Everything I enterprises need in tech too. in one spot. Yes. Yeah, we simplify the process. Okay, so I need a uh, SSL certificate. Yep. So SSL certificate. Yeah. So we do have domain providers as well and SSL certificates. Uh, we've got a hosting. platform kind of like Amazon. Yep. We've got some hosting partners as well. Someone to help with my website when it breaks. Yes, sir. We've got a uh, full stack development teams so we can build not only uh, websites, but also applications. All right. But then do you get into marketing or is it pure tech? I don't, like if I said a Google ad campaign, that would be outside of the, the octopus. So luckily not, uh, because we have a platform that's kind of like Amazon, any business could go on there and find whatever type of tool that they need. Could be simple stuff like Microsoft, uh, maybe Google for workspaces, could be cybersecurity or yeah, some marketing stuff like MarTech, right? So you get into the domain, the SSL, Google ads, Facebook ads, things like that as well. We have business uh, partners within our portfolio that take care of that type of thing. All right. Great idea. I love it. So what sets this apart from other tech suppliers that make it, that make you the most impactful privately held company. Is that the giving back to the community that sets you apart? Uh, I know that there's significant things for you to talk about there. What's the mm -hmm. secret sauce that's making you win awards and such? So there's kind of two things like from a structural standpoint, uh, the marketplace and uh, tool that we have to help businesses structure their software spend and all that is really part of it. You can go on, you can find any solution, you can manage it from a single console. So what that means is you get one bill, you have one single line of support, uh, you're able to aggregate all your licensing and see utilization as well. So 
from um, you know a business cost perspective and organization perspective, it makes it really nice, right? Like, because how many times does it happen where something breaks, you know, something ends up failing? You're trying to find the support number. Is it this? Is it that? You're you know waiting through emails. You're trying to find your contract. It's all over the place. You've got Adobe. You've got Microsoft. You've got a phone system over here. You've got your internet provider over there, right? And so what we do is we aggregate that all to one marketplace. You can find anything, anytime, anywhere there and have that single point of contact into support. So that's kind of the first part. But, and that's the, like, you know, the really exciting about the structural business of what we're doing now on the back end to your, you know, what you were kind of leading on to is Opuis itself stands for an opportunity for you as an opportunity for us. So larger than just the, you know, helping businesses with technology, we are a DE&I focused organization, right? Diversity, equity, and inclusion. So everything that we do is sustainable uh, for not only the environment, but the community as well. Uh, we satisfy diversity requirements for organizations that need to have that sort of, uh, you know, kind of set aside. And then we take a portion of everything that's sold through the platform and we reinvest that into other uh, veteran women and minority based businesses so we can create a closed loop economy of growing generational wealth. So I think that's why that we, you know, really stand out above the rest of the things, because not only are we helping people with like the day to day and the minutia. But we're also looking at the bigger picture and trying to figure out a way that we could do conscious capitalism. Well, that's a term that's taken some abuse recently. Yeah, I think so, too. Let's just not go there. (laughs) It It can be a touchy subject for sure. All right. So tell us more about the business. How big, how old, how many employees talk more entrepreneurially now. Yeah, absolutely. So Opuis itself has been in inception since 2021. Um, you know, I whiteboarded it back in 2015 when I was working in corporate America, um, you know, and just couldn't really get into it. Right. Like is having a day job and trying to run an entrepreneurial, an entrepreneurial endeavor is sometimes very difficult to find the time and energy. Um, so when I got laid off uh, during COVID in 2020 twice, I, you know, at the, the last time I was like, you know, I'm going to go out here and, and start this organization the way that I think it, you know, could be structured. So Opuis itself has hundreds of engineers nationwide um, that can help and assist with, you know, setting up strategic tech plans for organizations. We also have, uh, you know, hundreds of support folks so when you have the issues into your business we can take care of that as well and then we backdoor into all the suppliers tier two support so when it's something that our team can't handle on its very first tier we automatically go back into the second tier of every supplier's um, you know support mechanism to get even faster responses and results as well Um, we do service nationwide so it doesn't matter where you are uh, we have engineers uh, all over the nation. I myself am lo- located in Denver, Colorado, but uh, I do have boots on the ground all over the place. And, you know, obviously since COVID, it's really taught us that a lot of this stuff can be done remotely anyways. So can help anyone, anytime, anywhere. All right. And was there a light bulb moment? How did the inspiration, I, I know you just spoke to being laid off and I love how that leads to entrepreneurship. But was it an evolution of the idea? Had you had it in your back pocket? 
Yeah, there definitely was an evolution of, and I, you know, as an entrepreneur, like it's really important to pivot, right? Like, uh, you can get stuck in a lane for a long time and it might not produce fruit, right. Or it might not be scalable. And that's kind of where I was. So originally, Opus was uh, strategic business development. So we worked with enterprise organizations and some, you know, mid-sized businesses, and we would help them get into different markets, right? We would help them uh, get into new markets that they hadn't been in, whether that was a geographic market, or maybe it was a different vertical, like they wanted to get into construction and primarily they were in banking or something like that. So we would create roadmaps, uh, operational sales and marketing to get into new accounts and build out this new business model. The problem with that is the intellectual property was myself, right? And so it wasn't scalable. I could only get to maybe three or four organizations, right? And start building out these sales funnels, start building out these, uh, you know, tech stacks for them to, uh, to automate certain processes and to put things in CRMs and, and all that and create scalable processes. Uh, but, you know, by the time I got to the fourth client, I was, you know, I, I had meet my max potential and, I, you know, couldn't find any employees that could, you know, backfill what I did because a lot of it was the relationships I had built over the last couple of years. A lot of it was, uh, you know, kind of thinking outside the box and using some methodologies that I had, you know, developed and, and cultivated over, you know, years of mentorship. And so what ended up happening was um, in late 2022, I, um, I pivoted to the tech platform. And created this, you know, Amazon like of, of tech marketplace because it was the easiest way to scale what I was doing and still have a meaningful impact. And so were you able to start the business with just internal funds and bootstrap it? Yeah, so I bootstrapped the organization. Um, I haven't taken any investor funds uh, yet. I haven't taken any loans yet. I would love to, right? Uh, definitely kind of waiting certain types of options. Strategically in the market, it's been a little bit of a weird couple of years. I think we all can see that, um, you know, including last year when I was looking at some very critical funding and then Silicon Valley Bank went belly up and it really changed a lot of different things. So I, you know, I bootstrapped the thing with uh, some stocks that I had sold. I bootstrapped it with some strategic partnerships that I lined myself up with, you know, all those, uh, you know, types of things to, to kind of get it going and then, you know, funnel that, that money back into the business to help it grow. So that's really kind of been the, the trajectory of it. And, you know, honestly, it, it hasn't been easy, right? I'm a, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I'm a, you know, a single father. So, you know, time is always a critical element and resources is always a critical element. No, I did not know that. I'm uh, sorry to hear that, but uh, I think I'm a divorced dad and then remarried. So I was, uh, I don't know. I can relate to having kids to take care of sort of. Uh, well, and how, how is that? I mean, is that a huge part of the, does it limit the growth of the business? Um, I would, you know, I would be lying if I didn't say no, but yeah, I, if I didn't say yes, I should say, yeah. I mean, like I said, time and, and opportunity are probably some of the biggest factors of anybody's success in anything that they're doing. Right. Um, and being able to be all things to all people. So, you know, it definitely presents itself with certain, uh, I would say, roadblocks or not necessarily roadblocks. I should say speed bumps, right? Uh, but, you know, I, I love my son dearly. And, you know, it's, it's definitely that was all. And how big is the company now? What can you share with us in terms of, you know, scale, what you've reached in the last two, two and a half years, 
what are you willing to share in terms of fiscal or you know HR size or something like that? Yeah. So, like I said, uh, the way I strategically set up the organization, I have uh, now. You know, I myself am a one-user shop, but through strategic partnerships, I was able to scale through basically contracted employees. Um, so now I've taken a, you know one-person shop to hundreds of employees. Uh, well, uh, hundreds of contractors, I should say. Uh, and, you know, within that easily, I don't know, three decades worth of, you know, experience easily, um, you know, just kind of multiplying that stuff. We've enjoyed over the last two years, uh, 40% growth year over year. So, uh, you know, amassing millions of dollars in like seven figures in pipeline, uh, it's been, yeah, it's been really cool. I mean, it hasn't been without sleepless nights and all the, the pains that come with it, but, you know, definitely seeing growth, um, especially in a marketplace where a lot of businesses are kind of clamming up a little bit, right? Like uh, there isn't the funds that they necessarily would have had, right? And there's instabilities in certain places and markets over the last couple of years, right? And so we've been able to not only grow, but also help those organizations grow, right? Because the part of the genesis of what we do is we, we breed in efficiency. You know, we help people save money and save time by, uh, you know, optimizing their technology stacks by being able to, you know, offshore certain delegate, you know, parts of the business, et cetera. Uh, so we find ourselves a really smart option, uh, not only in times of, uh, downturn, but also in, in times of growth. Tell us about the TV show. Yeah, so the box right is uh, is a very it was a very exciting opportunity. I think I was um, probably on Facebook one late night, you know, kind of disassociating a little bit in between work tasks, and I I saw an ad that said, "Are you an entrepreneur? Would you like to be on TV?" And on a whim, I said, "You know, f it, <laughs> let's just see, let's just see what happens. You know, let's go down this rabbit hole because I'm a naturally curious person." Uh, so I applied for the show, went through a series of, of casting calls and, you know, uh, you know, applications and things like that. And I had almost forgot about it. And then out of the blue, I get, you know, an email notification, like, congratulations, you've been selected as one of the finalists to, to join us on the blocks. And, um, you know, super blown away. I had the opportunity to fly out to uh, Overland, Kansas is where it was filmed at the time. Uh, and I joined 70 entrepreneurs from all over the nation to compete in the world's largest competition for startups. And so, what was the competition? I mean, what did you do in the middle of the prairie? Yeah. So there is a, like a, a big co-working spot that they had us and we all lived in a hotel together. Uh, but the kind of, the way that it worked is there was kind of daily lessons. Like let's talk about, uh, you know, scalability. Uh, let's talk about, oh, uh, how do you get funds and investments? So there was like kind of like a classroom setting, educating us on, you know, how to get funding, the different types of ways to do it, et cetera. And then we would get 15 minutes to create a presentation based around that. And then we were judged uh, that, you know, that fit our business. And then we were judged by a series of very successful uh, mentors and entrepreneurs from all over the globe. And, um, you know, anybody who came out of that competition then went to the main competition or what was called the block software. It was like the main pitch competition in which they would give you a different prompt and you'd have very short amount of time to be able to, you know, give your presentation on that and 
pardon me, and the, and the judges would vote on it. And every day, you know, people, there was like weighted scales and, and all this stuff. And it was crazy. The super long days, you know, we would start at like eight or 9 AM and we would go and film until like easily some nights. I, I think one of the nights I didn't get back to like one cause I was invited back to the, uh, the host's house, um, you know, to play some pool and to chat and stuff like that. And where do we get to watch this TV show and when? Yeah, so this is the uh, the even more exciting part of it, right? So originally it was a webcast only. It was on Facebook, uh, Facebook Watch, and then also on their website. Uh, and then two weeks after it being released for my season to air, it was picked up by Amazon Prime Video. So you can also watch not only the show on the, the Betablocks website or on, on their app because they have a proprietary app, uh, for entrepreneurs, it's got all kinds of cool stuff on there, you know, binaural beats and, and different types of things to, to organize yourself and all that stuff. But it also has the show. Uh, but yeah, it was picked up by Amazon Prime Video. And so you can watch it there. I'm on season seven. Lucky number seven, baby. Very interesting. I love it. Do you... Well, let me tell you a little story. When I was running my very first business, it became apparent that I needed to win some awards and stuff. We were out raising money and it was just the, the season of awards. And so I had a publicist and they asked what awards I wanted to win. And I said, I gave a, a list and they said, okay. And I won some of those awards, you know, I wanted the 40 under 40 in my town in Atlanta and all of that. And I actually got number one of that class that year. And all of that kind of stuff. And it taught me a lesson that so much PR is purchased. And Dante, you've got the greatest PR ever, the most impactful company awards and all of the stuff, the accolades I mentioned. You just explained the blocks. There's no PR strategy about that. You were just up at four in the morning. Other than that, though, are you, do you have a publicist? Do you go out and seek these awards? I went out and sought mine. What about, what about yours? I do not have a publicist. I'm um, entertaining the idea of getting one though, right? Like to your point, like it's very important to create that, that credibility and get these awards and, you know, kind of uh, put the proof that is already in the pudding out there on the line for everybody. So I'm definitely entertaining it. Honestly, I just, um, I find myself, like I said earlier in the conversation, I'm a naturally curious person. So I, I uncover a lot of opportunities, um, you know, just through different avenues of searching and also my network. A lot of people, hey, you know, say, hey, look, I think you'd be a shoe in for this. Uh, let me connect you to, you know, this gal over here, or this guy over here. Right. And, and get me into, you know, these different types of situations. And so I've been very blessed so far to find, you know, these opportunities organically. Um but probably within the next year or two, you probably end up seeing a lot more of that, you know, honestly, to your point. And what about the book well. single parent entrepreneur? When does that come out? <laughs> as soon as I find the time to write it, I'll put it in chat GPT. I just, uh, I'll just sit there and dictate to chat GPT and, and help have it help me. write. I think that would probably be the best way to get that done. Well, it'd be interesting how little you could put into the system to actually prompt out a book. If you were to say, you know, here's nine stories, each, you know, four or five lines long. And you gave it to GPT and said, all right, now base a book 
here's nine stories, nine chapters, turn that into a book for me. Um, yeah. It'd be interesting it's definitely doable. Definitely doable. And especially the more I do these types of engagements, like the radio interviews and podcasts, because then uh, the more media that I, that's out there, right, I can actually have it start pulling from things that I've said in interviews and things that I've done in the past to get my narrative, to get my voice, right, to get it proper. Um, I don't know how often you use chat GPT, but you can make it right in all kinds of different voice and styles. Right. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So the more I put out there, then the more is exposed, right. And gives it more fuel to be able to build that out. So that would actually, I should give that a whirl. Now, I, sometimes I say the things I need to hear out loud. I'm like, actually, I could probably even do that right now. There might be enough media out there to, to make that happen. Well, also the way I write books is to take things that, you know, just recordings or just to sit down and start talking and then take that and then structure that and throw some stuff out. And, you know, the, the hard part is getting stuff out there. And so if, even if it's just verbal and then you use a transcription, you know, that's, I think the hard part, that's 75%, I think. And so, yeah, yeah. That's what I mean. It's like, I, there's enough verbal out there that I could have it transcribed and then turn that into, you know, kind of subcategories within a book. <laughs> yes. Funny. Yes. Well, Dante, it's a fascinating story and thank you for sharing with it. And I will watch you on season seven for sure. That, uh, will be fascinating and congratulations on Opus. How do we find out more? Follow you online, all that stuff, please. Yep. So you can find me at, uh, all social medias is O-P-P-U-O-U-S. I'm on pretty much all of them. Um, I do have a TikTok, but it's not really very active, so don't try to find me there. <laughs> but if you are interested in the marketplace, please go to uh, com slash marketplace. It is complimentary to every business out there. It will always be complimentary to every business out there. So it's just a great way for you to find and purchase the right tools that you need for your business and be able to manage them. And then if you are looking for more of a custom engagement where our engineers will meet with you and be able to, um, you know, kind of set you up for success, we do free consultations. So go to uh, opus.com slash prime dash membership. You can find a little bit more about that. We've got two very affordable packages, one for, uh, $50 a month, the other one for $100 a month, where you'll get custom curated advisement throughout the, the course of your, your business, right? In addition to what already comes from the marketplace. So I that's where you can find me. And, uh, you know, like I always try to end everything. I want to thank everybody for tuning in, right? Um, I think as entrepreneurs, we need to take the time to thank ourselves because there's lots of, you know, we talked about today, uh, you know, there's not enough time in every single day, uh, sometimes. And so you've taken the time out to, to engage into this, you know, this radio show as you always tune in for it because you want to build your craft. So thank yourself, right? I, I thank you for tuning in, but also thank yourself. And I always say perspiration, you know, manifestation without perspiration stays in your imagination, right? So you can't just think it, you have to get out there and do it. And that's how you're going to get it out and you're going to get it done. There is no, there is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Hard work is part of the game. Don't believe the BS of the four-hour work week and stuff like that. Oh, I love that. I, I love that you say that. I think that that's one of my most hated books of all time. Oh, I just hate it. 
Yeah, I think the idea is cute, right? I think it's a great idea, like a story to tell. But the reality of the situation is there is no substitute for hard work. And that's why I say manifestation without perspiration stays in your imagination. I say that to all my mentees. I say that to my son. If you want something, you, you first you got to think about it. Things you got to believe it. But then you actually have to do it. You have to write that first chapter of that book. You got to pick up that baseball bat. You got to go to the gym. You got to create your first, uh, you know, product, make your first sale. There is no way around it, but to do it. Dante, thank you so much for being with us. Great stuff. Really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure, Jim. And we will be right back. We are back in again. Thank you so very much for being with us on a wonderful Monday. Remember, it's a choice. We can make it a wonderful Monday by our choices. I'm very excited to welcome back to the show. Corey Doctorow, he has been with us. We were trying to figure out either two or three times before because he's just so interesting. He is a science fiction author and activist and a journalist, author of several books. I was trying to count them up. I, is it seven now, Corey? Oh, no, it's dozens. It's dozens. about 25. I wrote nine during lockdown, so uh the, i i've lost track okay good i have too and so is uh, apparently has uh amazon because i couldn't find 25 books on there anyway we're going to talk about his one of his newest the internet con how to seize the means of computation Corey, welcome back how are you thank you very much it's a pleasure to be on so nine books during lockdown my god uh are you still locked down? <laughs> Is that burst? I, I, so look, I write, I write to, I, I write to, to cope with my stress. And so when I'm anxious and things seem bad, I just disappear into a writing hole. So when the lockdown hit, I climbed into my hammock in the backyard and basically sat there and wrote just book after book after book. Took, you know, about two years of, of solid writing. Um, and, you know, some of these are novels. I, I, as we're recording this in December, I'm, I'm just uh, about to go into the studio uh, to record the audiobook of my next novel, uh, a sequel to my book, Red Team Blues, called The Bezel. And we're going to be uh, in the studio with Will Wheaton recording that audiobook just as he did the previous one. Some are nonfiction books like The Internet Con. Um, and, uh, one, uh, well, two or three really are cheats. So one is a short story collection. So I've had a couple of short stories in the can before then, but I published several during lockdown and I'm assembling them into one book. One is a collection of essays. I, I had a weekly column for a magazine and I've assembled those into a book. And one is a graphic novel being adapted by uh, Macmillan from a novella that I'd written. So I'm supervising the script, but, uh, it's really an adaptation. All right. Red Team, I remember, was the one about the crypto theft, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then this one is about prison tech and about uh, the the way that uh, the things that we do with technology to the people who don't have a choice are a kind of um, leading indicator of the terrible things we're going to do to people who have more choice that basically within this terrible technology adoption curve, we, we sand down the roughest edges 
of our technology on the bodies of people who who can't say no so you know prisoners refugees kids and then we work our way up to like blue collar workers and then it's white collar workers and so you get the circumstance where like if 20 years ago you were having your dinner in front of a, a cctv that was because you were in a supermax and now it's because you were dumb enough to buy a home automation system from apple or google or god help us all facebook and and the the hero of red team blues and the bezel is a forensic accountant a high-tech forensic accountant who sees one of his friends locked up for life under California's three strikes rules and who discovers very quickly that he can no longer uh, send letters or visit this friend that as is the case in private prisons around the country, they've eliminated uh, in-person visits and the mail and a library and school in favor of a quote unquote free tablet where you pay by the seconds to talk with your family, where you pay for every quote unquote page of email, where you have to pay even to see uh, public domain uh, books from the Gutenberg project and, and where to add insult to injury, periodically they change vendors and they delete all the books and music you've paid for at five times the rate on the outside and make you buy them all over again with the 17 cents an hour you get for working in the prison workshop. My goodness, this is a lot to take in court. You know, at some level, I'm like, who cares? They're in prison. They killed people. They don't deserve hey, who cares. Yeah. That's, not the, that's level, not the California prison population. Three plead, plead guilty to three felonies. Uh, and remember 97% of the people who are indicted, uh, plead out, which means that either the, uh, the, the, uh, district attorneys are incredibly like psychically good and never ever make mistakes uh, or uh, people are just railroaded into pleading out. And so in California, until they rescinded the three strikes rule, because it had imprisoned so many people that the Supreme court said, if you put one more person in prison, it's going to violate their eighth amendment rights to be free from uh, cruel and unusual punishment. Cause there's, you know, 10 people in a cell made for two serving a 25 year sentence that they finally had to strike down this three strikes rule. And so you get people who, you know, urinate in public and get charged with a felony endangerment of children because they were within, you know, a hundred yards of a school, even though it was two in the morning and there were no students around and who plead out to a lesser charge that's still a felony. And you get caught in three of those felonies and you go to jail for life, which was uh, the, the case in California until pretty recently. All right. And then on the other hand, Corey, I hear and see stories that. There are gang robberies of the stores in California that the amazing shopping areas of San Francisco are decimated. They're gone. Yeah. You haven't been keeping up with the news because actually the retail association that released those numbers just walked them back and said, actually shoplifting is slightly down this year from previous years. Uh, what happened was that some reporters went and looked up the source of those numbers they were citing. It was about a $45 billion shoplifting loss and it turned out it was a number from 2016 and it accounted for all shrinkage not just shoplifting loss so that's things damaged in transit and in, insider theft and so on and then it just got garbled and repeated by a guy who was a very high paid uh, consultant to the uh, retail uh, industry association who eventually said we just lost 45 billion dollars to smash and grab gangs and when you actually look at the numbers which are very secretive that took a lot of work to get these numbers out of them um, you find out that actually it's pretty much static that the amount of shoplifting losses bumps around by about 1% per annum up or down uh, and hasn't changed really in a couple of decades, but it is slightly down this year. It's a little up in New York and slightly down everywhere else. All right. Uh, 
let's get back to the book and talk about yeah. that. Paul. <laughs> talk to me about your writing process. How are you able to be so productive? Seven books or nine books, or whatever it was during the couple of years pandemic. I was just happy that I got a treehouse built in my backyard, Corey. That was our <laughs> pandemic project. Uh, what Very does the nice. process look like? Where do the ideas come from? Talk to me about the yeah. yellow legal pad or the computer or whatever. I watched a Tom Wolf documentary last night. Absolutely fascinating. He typed everything on the old fashioned IBMer. What about you? Yeah, it's electric. That's fun. I love the sound of the electric. That whack, whack, whack when when you uh, when the the little type ball hits the paper. I, I'm not like that at all. And we did some building too. We built a a, a giant tiki bar in our backyard. Uh, my my father uh, with dad joke style named it the bar mitzvah when he came to visit. But we built like basically an ADU for booze. It's quite good. But my writing process, you know, I like a lot of writers. I started writing as a kid. I really enjoyed it. It was fun. I took writing classes in school and I always got the extra credit assignments and so on. And I started to sell stories as a teenager to the magazines because mostly I'm a science fiction writer. Uh, the kind of policy stuff is, uh, is my day job, which, uh, you know, I've worked for the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which is a digital human rights group for a quarter of a century now on these issues. Um, but uh, eventually I hit this point where I was actually selling not just stories, but novels, and I was having to uh, sell, uh, write those novels while I was extraordinarily busy. So I did a venture back startup in the late 90s um, and actually moved to San Francisco from Toronto, where, where I was born and where we raised our capital, to uh, open up our Bay Area office. And I was under contract to produce my second book then. And then I actually left that startup and went to work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation and moved to London to be their European director. Uh, and I was in 31 countries in three years. I was on the road 27 days a month. I stopped plugging in my fridge because uh, it wasn't worth the 10 bucks a month it took me to keep my ice cubes frozen. And I had to figure out how to write, not just when like the mood was good or when I had, you know, lured the muse into the room with scented candles or whatever. I had to learn to write wherever I was, right? If I had 10 minutes in, um, you know, uh, uh, airport lounge in, in Turin in an easy jet, uh, uh, gateway where the only plug was like next to the bathroom underneath the water fountain, I was crouched against the wall with my laptop writing. I had to be able to get whatever a hundred words in then. And I had this realization at the time that, um, although there were days when it felt like I was writing badly and like each word I could think of was worse than the last. And although there were days when it felt like I was really sort of touched by the finger of inspiration and just flying and I could uh, do no wrong. And although there were in the text that I produced, words that were very good and didn't need any editorial revision. And there were other passages that really did need to be scrapped and rewritten, that these were not correlated at all. The biggest correlate of me feeling like I was writing badly was uh, stress, right? It was like, did I fight with my girlfriend? Did I get enough sleep? Am I horribly jet lagged? What's my blood sugar like? Am I hungover? Am I losing at work? You know, uh, and when, when that happened, um, it would feel terrible. And so what I learned to do uh, was to feel these terrible emotions, which have never gone away, uh, and to write anyway, to, to say to myself, I, I 
I understand these feelings. These feelings are completely real, but they are not related to reality. Although I am feeling them as, as vividly as I would if this were, if these words were as bad as I thought, um, I would, uh, still, uh, um, uh, these are not bad words. These are fine words or they might be bad and I won't know it until uh, six months have gone by and I've come back and revisited this stuff. So that was really key. And it let me get to a place where I could just work on whatever long form project I was working on every day uh, and then be done with it. So, you know, if you're, if you're working on a novel at a page a day, 250 words a day, uh, that's a novel every year. Uh, it's 20 to 25 minutes of composition. Uh, you know, it takes, you, you spend the intervening 24 hours between writing that page, thinking about what's going to go on it. And, and one of my stupid people tricks here is finishing in the middle of a sentence because then you get three words for free the next morning. And, and I'm not very bright. It. So it took me about it. It took me about a decade to figure out that if I forgot and finished the sentence, that I could just delete the last three words I'd written the day before and start over. And that worked too. So that's, that's worked really well. And then, you know, for my day to day practice and for research and for idea development, I, through that whole period that I'm describing, I've been a blogger. I was one of the, the founding editors of a website called Boing Boing, still co-own it, although I haven't written on it since 2020. Um, and we were one of the first very successful blogs. I wrote between five and 10 blog posts every day for about 20 years, tens of thousands of blog posts. And the way that that worked is that everything that seemed remotely significant, it seemed like something I'd want to keep track of rather than scribbling a note to myself in a little notebook in my pocket that I would never be able to make sense of again, not just because my handwriting is terrible, but because when you're taking notes for yourself, it's really easy to cheat yourself and, and say, oh, I'll know later. And then you don't. Instead, I, I consumed that and processed it and wrote it up for strangers, which you know requires a certain rigor that you don't get when you're making notes for yourself. And it created both a, a literal database, right? This is all sitting in a WordPress database on a server that I can go back and search, as well as annotations, because my readers would write and say, hey, you're, you're, you're really foolish for having written this. Here's something you didn't consider. Or, hey, here's another aspect of this that's important. And then it also creates a kind of metaphorical database, a, a kind of subconscious, super-saturated solution of little fragmentary stuff that seemed important and that gets fixed into your mind by the act of writing, by the act of thinking it through. And these just kind of float around back there and every now and again, a couple of them will stick together and nucleate and then crystallizing out of that comes a speech or a novel or a nonfiction book or an essay or a position paper. And, and that's been really productive too. And now that I have a 20 year database of this stuff, every morning I sit down and for my newsletter, I go through the posts that I made this day, 20 years ago, 15 years ago, 10 years ago, five years ago, and one year ago. And I just do a roundup of the headlines with links back to those original posts. Uh, and that act itself reminds me of what I used to be thinking about and how my thinking has changed and what's changed in my world since then. It can be very heartwarming, you know, at, at the announcement of my daughter's birth, you know, uh, but it can also be really exciting to realize that something that I'm thinking about now actually really connects to something I was writing about 10 or 15 or even 20 years ago. It's a bit like when you're working dough and there's the dried out crumbly stuff at the edge and you fold it into the middle, you mix it back in and it 
becomes part of the, the structure of the dough again. And so all of those things together, that daily writing practice, um, the ability to sort of feel the fear and do it anyway, the, the act of creating this database instead of making notes, all of this together is, I think, how I've become so extraordinarily prolific, especially now in my 50s, where I just have this gigantic database of stuff that is all sticking together in these novel and interesting ways. How many books are in your head right now that you have not published? Well, I've got, I've got, uh, two more Martin Hench books. That's the red team blues book. I've got two more on the drawing board and I've got about seven or eight short stories on the drawing board. I also have been thinking through uh, a new nonfiction book. So I, I, I wrote three books in quick succession, nonfiction books that all chase the same idea from different angles. And this is also a thing that happens when you're writing blog posts, but also novels. You're often trying to capture a feeling or a sense or an aesthetic impact. And you come at it from different angles and different books and you're trying to get there. And so the first one was a book called How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism that was a rebuttal to Shoshana Zuboff and her book about surveillance capitalism. And the idea that a lot of what she attributed to the ability of big tech to effectively control our minds with big data could be much more simply described in traditional anti-monopoly terms, that much of what she thought of as being controlling by changing our minds was really controlled by narrowing our options through monopoly. And then from there, I wrote a book with my colleague, Rebecca Giblin in Australia. She's a copyright expert at the University of Melbourne about the role of monopoly in creative labor markets called choke point capitalism. That was about um, how how to explain the fact that although copyright is now much stronger than it's ever been, you know, for 40 years, we made copyright last longer, cover more kinds of works, it has stiffer penalties, it's easier to get those penalties. And the industries that bring copyrighted works to market are much larger and more profitable, film, books, TV, games, and so on. Um, but the share of income going to artists both in real terms and proportionally, has gone down every time we've made copyright stronger. And, and, and we asked, like, how did this happen? And the answer for us is that if you have a market for creative works with five publishers, four studios, three labels, two ad tech companies, and one company that controls every venue and all the ticketing for it in the world, that giving an artist more copyright to bargain with is like giving your bullied kid extra lunch money to buy lunch with, right? There isn't an amount of lunch money that the bullies go, oh, we've just got enough. We'll leave you with the residue. All you do is make the bully stronger. And so we uh, analyze how this happened, and then we project these, these um, uh, shovel-ready uh, policy prescriptions, technical ones, not like how do you as an individual bargain better as an artist or how do you as an individual buy art better, but like what can our policymakers do that change the distribution of income in the arts so that artists have more money to put like braces on their kids' teeth and buy groceries and pay their mortgages instead of just more exclusive rights that immediately get bargained away. And so that was the third one and then the, the or the second one. Then the third one is the one we're talking about today, The Internet Con, which is a book about how we fix the internet more broadly beyond the creative arts. And then in the process of thinking that through, I started writing about something. Um, I don't know. Can I swear on your podcast? Yes. Or on your show, radio rather. Radio show, we're on 65. Radio stations. show. I beg your pardon. I knew that. I so knew that. I knew that. I think that's why I said edit that. it out. Okay. Right. Yeah. So there's an FCC rule. So it's, it's, it's a word that. Uh, you could think of as interdification, except the turd is swapped for a four-letter Anglo-Saxon okay, monosyllable. And and it describes the, the way that platforms decay, 
right? Where, where platform decay comes from. And again, what policy prescriptions we can do to reverse it. How is it that the, the internet has turned into five giant websites filled with screenshots from the other four and that every time we use them, the results seem to be worse? What policy ideas led to that and what policy ideas can reverse it? What can we do to unlock markets so that entrepreneurs can re-enter the market so that we can dream more of more than, you know, starting a, an aqua hire company that just gets bought and killed by a big tech company. We can dream of more than like getting a job for life at a big tech company that comes with like free kombucha and massages on Wednesdays. We can certainly dream of more than like being a Googler who gets laid off along with 12,000 other Googlers like a month after the company does a stock buyback that would have paid all those salaries for the next 27 years. So what can we do to dream of like a much more robust competitive internet that recaptures the entrepreneurial spirit and the value that was delivered to innovators and to their users in the earlier days of the internet before this consolidation. And so, you know, that's, that, that might end up being the fourth book in this ongoing series of how to understand what's happened with tech and what makes tech worse and then how we make it better. So tell us more about the internet con, how to seize the means of computation. Uh, I love what you said about there's five sites on the internet now and all they have is pictures of the other four. I've never thought about that. I'm going to have to spend a day on that thought alone, Corey. <laughs> Deep dive me well, into your internet words. con book. Sure. Well, credit where it's due, that's a quote from Tom Eastman, who's a great software developer in, uh, in New Zealand. Um, so uh, I, um, I think that the internet did used to be better. And I think that the policies that created this worsening internet are, are really, they start with a, a failure to enforce competition law. Uh, we used to have really robust competition law until about the Carter administration where it started to get weaker. And then under Reagan, it got much weaker. And every presidential administration since has made competition law looser. And so what that's allowed companies to do is by competitors. So think of a company like Google, which had one really good search engine 25 years ago, but then everything they built in-house almost without exception was a failure. You know, it's not just like their RSS reader or their Wi-Fi balloons, but all those social media networks, messaging clients and so on. You know, the Google graveyard is filled with the bodies of dead tech projects. And yet they are in all these different lines of business, mobile, server management, collaboration, mapping and satellite imagery and so on. And all of those companies, even YouTube, they're all acquisitions. And those all would have been banned until the Reagan era. And so what that would have done is meant that after Google did this amazing search engine, they would have collapsed the way that, say, DEC collapsed or Compaq collapsed or Cray collapsed. And they would have cleared the field for a successor company. Instead, they were able to buy their way into continuing dominance. And, and as we've seen in this new uh, DOJ case against Google, they're spending about as much as Elon Musk spent on Twitter every single year just for default position in every platform so that you never even try another search engine. So what even you if you raise you capital mean default position, the fact that you buy a new computer and already it's loaded with their stuff. Yeah. Every browser, every mobile device, you buy an iOS device, right? You buy an iPhone and the default search engine is Google, right? It's the single largest deal. The two companies do every year and it's done individually between the two CEOs. They sit down and they make that bargain every year. So you never even get to try another search engine. So if you're a search engine entrepreneur with an idea as revolutionary as PageRank, it doesn't matter. 
because no one will ever discover your search engine because the default is set on all these platforms. So you get these companies that buy their way to dominance through buying competitors. And then you also get companies that buy their way to dominance by selling below cost. So like Amazon uh, tried to buy a company called diapers.com in its early history. Diapers.com sold diapers. They said, we're not for sale. We've got a really good business. We're in profit here. Unlike Amazon, which is losing money on every sale because the capital markets are willing to fund them to do that. And so Amazon said, right, we're discounting diapers. They lit a hundred million dollars on fire in the next six months selling diapers significantly below cost until diapers.com went out of business. They were bought for pennies on the dollar by Amazon and then shut down. And that also was illegal. Right, these these predatory pricing arrangements. So you get this this the first thing that you get is the concentration of tech down to a, a small number of companies. Now, when a, a, an industry concentrates into a small number of companies, it becomes much easier for it to capture its regulators because regulatory capture requires that everyone speak with one voice. If half of you are telling regulators one thing, the other half are telling the regulators something else. The regulators are going to go right. We're just going to go look at the evidence. But if everyone shows up telling the same story, then that story becomes the regulatory framework. So if you remember the Napster Wars, there were like a couple hundred squabbling tech companies, but seven entertainment giants. And the entertainment giants had total message discipline. Every court, every regulator, every lawmaker heard the same thing about copyright and peer-to-peer, -peer, whereas tech giant or tech companies were all over the map. And because there were so many of them, they couldn't even agree on like how to cater a meeting to discuss what they should tell the uh, the regulators, let alone what that message should be. And so now tech is you know super concentrated. They managed to capture their regulators, and that lets them be both under and over-regulated. So they're under-regulated in the sense that we say that the traditional contours of privacy law, consumer protection, and labor, they don't apply to tech. Uh, if you do it with an app, it's not a violation. So, you know, if, if I were to... Um, you know, have a, a, a wage that I paid to my workers that varied from minute to minute based on my view of what they were willing to accept, I would be a giant NLRB like kind of uh, uh, incoming target, right? I'd be in their crosshairs. But Uber does this thing called algorithmic wage discrimination, where they um, uh, there are two kinds of Uber drivers. There's drivers who are really picky. They call themselves pickers. And drivers who take every ride, they're called ants. Uber's pricing algorithm notices which drivers are picky and offers them a premium to drive. But as they drive more, the premium dwindles. And if they start driving less, the premium goes back up again until they've been finally like kind of exhausted in this, you know, fisherman's game of giving them a little line and reeling them back in. And once they're accepting this low wage consistently, which is kind of a marker for having given up whatever side hustles they had that let them not drive Uber, their wage is permanently fixed at this low rate, right? So not only would that be technically impossible, for a traditional employer. It's also would be illegal, but you obfuscate it with an app and you're fine to do it. Amazon does versions of this with how they pay out premiums to, um, uh, to the people who sell on their platform. And they have these things that would normally be illegal as a consumer if they were done to you. So if I go into a store and I say, right, I'd like seven Duracell batteries or eight Duracell batteries, please. And Amazon sold you seven Dubacell batteries across the counter they would be violating fair trading laws, but they have this $31 billion a year payola market where you pay to be the top rank for a search result, even if you're not the best match for that search result. And so you can search for common products and instead of getting the product that is high quality that you thought you were looking for, you get a product that's a knockoff where they've traded product quality for um, advertising dollars 
to be at the top of the results. And if you take the top result on Amazon for a search, you will on average pay 30% more than you would for the best result. So again, this is just a total ripoff. So you have this under-regulation, privacy, consumer protection, and labor, under-regulated for tech giants. And then you have over-regulation, because if you wanted to make a bot that reverse-engineered the Amazon app and just automatically discarded all of those uh, um, suggested uh, products, those, those pay-for-play, or if you wanted to make an app that blocked the privacy violations on uh, Instagram's app so that all you saw were the posts from your friends, not suggested posts, and no telemetry was fed back to, to uh, Facebook, to Meta, the regulations that the tech companies like, like the copyright rules that ban reverse engineering or the cybersecurity laws that ban uh, um, bypassing terms of service, those laws would be mobilized to reduce you to radioactive level. All that interoperability that those tech companies loved when they were starting out, right? So, you know, you look at, you look at Apple, when I was a CIO in the early 2000s, you had Apple um, uh, on the ropes, right? Because Microsoft Office for the Mac was so bad that CIOs like me were taking away the designers' Macs and replacing them with PCs or giving them a dedicated PC workstation just to use for Word docs to communicate with everybody else. And, and the way Steve Jobs resolved that was not by like begging, uh, you know, Microsoft to make a better version of uh, Office for Mac. He cloned Office for Mac, right? They reverse engineered those file formats. They made uh, iWork pages, uh, iWork, which is pages, numbers, and Keynote, which read and write those Microsoft Office files. And then it was really easy to switch. You remember the switch campaigns. Are you a Windows users? Switch to the Mac. It's really easy, and you'll still be able to access all your files without using Microsoft's cursed Mac for the office, uh, Office for Mac. Now, do that to iOS today, make a runtime or, you know, make an interoperable player for its media. And, you know, they'll bomb you to the rubble bounces. They'll say that you violated the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act and Section 1201 of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. You tortiously interfered with their contracts. All of this nonsense, right? And so you combine those three factors, a lack of competition, there's nowhere to go, like Lily Tomlin used to say in those fake AT&T ads, we don't care, we don't have to care, we're the phone company. You combine that with under-regulation, where they get to abuse their workers, their customers, and um, the, the general public in ways that they would have historically not been allowed to do, and which other businesses can't do, along with over-regulation, where Firms that try to offer you a better deal, reverse engineering the uh, security system in your printer for refillable ink cartridges or reverse engineering the lockout system in a John Deere tractor so that farmers can do their own repairs as they've been doing since Roman times, which is why every farmhouse has had a forge in it for thousands of years, um, or reverse engineering iOS so that you can use a third-party app store. You do any of that and you and the state will be mobilized to block the competitor who is offering the customer a better deal. And you get the situation where companies are unshackled from the discipline of regulation, are unshackled from the discipline of competition, they're, they're unshackled from the discipline imposed by users themselves taking self-help measures, and now as the labor market has loosened for tech workers, they're unshackled by workers who themselves say, look, I know that this will make you more money, but I didn't miss my kids' Little League games to make a product that abuses my users in this way. I refuse to do the work and you can't find someone else to do it. And you get these companies that have a free-for-all, and every bad idea that comes up in a boardroom turns into a product plan. Corey, wow. 
That was an amazing diatribe. I'm going to have to listen to that again and again and study that. You blew me away. We only have 10 seconds left. How long should SBF go to jail? Oh, I'm a prison abolitionist. So, uh, you know, he should, he should be made to do, uh, to, to make amends for the people around him. Uh, and he should be permanently banned from, from doing, uh, any kind of finance deals. And, uh, venture capitalists who backed him should be struck off and be, uh, required never to make investments again because they have proven that they're bad capital allocators. Uh, and he should live in poverty for the rest of his life because of the attachment of his assets. But I don't think paying to keep that, that, you know, crook in prison is going to do anyone any good, especially not the people he harmed. Um, I think that, uh, you know, keeping him out in the community as an example for everyone else and having him live in shame for the rest of his life would be a much better. How do we find out more? Follow online, get some books. Yeah. Pluralistic.net is where you go. It's my daily newsletter. Uh, it links to all my books. You can get them in any bookstore. They're mostly from Macmillan, also Random House and other big publishers. I understand the irony of that. Uh, and, um, and you know, I've got a daily newsletter and RSS feed and all those other things. They're surveillance free, they're ad free, they're tracker free, and uh, they're all Creative Commons licensed. So you can republish them and even charge money for them. Awesome. Corey, amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, this is why we have you back. You're a fountain of uh, new thoughts. I appreciate it. All right. Thank you. It was really my pleasure. Hope to come back on when one of those other bajillion books I wrote come out. Uh, we will have you back. You're on the list. Uh, Corey, great. All right. Thanks a lot. We are out of time. Thank for you. Day, but you know what? We come back real soon. Be safe, everyone. Take care. Bye now. 